there, my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Besides working on the weekly publication Carp World and being an acknowledged expert in his own right on the subject of surface fishing for carp, Chris Ball is also a respected carp historian and it's this particular thread of his enthusiasm for the species that we're going to explore here, spanning the gap between their initial introduction to the country right through to Richard Walker and his £44 red mile record Clarissa. An area of fishing which, while it's of great interest to most carp enthusiasts, is not something too many become actively involved in researching, preferring to leave it to others. So as one of those others, it's now down to you to give us the guided tour. Now a big part of it all in this whole gambit of carp fishing, where I found myself in a niche market, besides the floater fishing thing, is writing about the history of it. And um, in Carp World which was in 1988, the first newsstand carp-only magazine in the world started. And I was in issue number one, writing about history of carp fishing. They recently, last year, had the 250th edition, and I was in that one. Here we are, some of the ones, and I managed to get me a picture on the cover of that one. Uh, it's a new book by me called Best of the Famous Catches, and this is enlarged versions uh, or rewritten new pictures versions of some of the stories that I've written about in Cart World over the years I write on a weekly website which comes out today on the Semex site I've done for a number of years called a special album and I relate once a week a picture and a story so to give you an idea this site which is one of the most popular sites by far there's been over 202,000 hits, including over a 1,000 replies. Here's my offering today. And so each week, there we are, just a little bit. It's about Jack Hilton, this one today, which I posted at six minutes past nine. And I'm sure, yeah, it doesn't get any better than that. We're over 102 pages. So I produce, and this has got an unbelievable following, I I really can't believe it myself. And there's other than Kevin Clifford, my business partner, though he doesn't write on a regular basis, he's produced sort of groundbreaking books on the subject. But on a day-to-day, there's nobody in the UK except me that's sort of writing about stuff like that. And I'm glad to say that there is a strong interest in where it's all come from. And uh, it's the journey, not just the size of the fish in the end, it's Obviously, every picture tells a story. But yeah, so this is a, a, a latest one um, that's just come out, and um, we produced this. It's uh, our company, Carp Fishing News. It was launched at the Carping On Show, which is another thing I'm involved with, which is the big carp show of the year, which takes place every March, and it was launched there. And can you believe it, by about one o'clock on the Sunday, two-day show, we ran out of hardback, so, so we had to get some more done but yeah I'm showing the front cover here there's 20 stories in here and um, virtually every one of those people depicted on there I have sat down at some stage or other in the last 40 years and talked about their catches very kindly giving me pictures when I've requested them and what have you so some of them are sort of first hand sort of stories that I, I got from people so that is a big thing which gives me an insight into a little bit, and Kevin Clifford certainly a lot more, into 
How the hell did this all happen? Which begs the question, when did Cart first arrive in Britain and how did they get here? Right, well, though it's still largely unclear, as a general answer to when, they were certainly here in the 12th and 13th century, a long, long time ago. The monastic monks, certainly in the, around the 16th century, had car in the famous stew ponds. This was uh, no meat on Friday, of course, uh, and fish was an alternative, not necessarily a sea fish. In the 1600s, you can imagine the road networks in this country from the shore around the islands uh, was uh, pretty uh, dire, I should think. So um, to breed and to propagate fresh water fish, and um, carp was one of the ones that they did. One of the really interesting developments, uh, sort of around that time, 16th, 17th, 18th century, is that there, there was individuals in the UK that did uh, land, people had estates, created artificial fish ponds as part of the um, wealth of the property. But these, some of these people started to import from mainly Germany a carp called a Spiegel Karfen. And uh, Spiegel is the German word for mirror, mirror image. And these were the cultivated king carp strain. These have been manufactured by the hand of man, manufactured by the hand of man, and uh, has produced selective breeding, not only in the growth, but in the structure of the, the fish itself, the way it looks, and obviously its scaling pattern as well. And um, these emanated uh, from, I guess, what would be now classed as the old Eastern Bloc countries, Poland, Germany, Bohemia, Czechoslovakia, were heavily into carp as a major food source, thousands of tons harvested every year. We're left with the legacy today of the German national Christmas dish. It's still a boiled, steamed, baked carp of some description. It is a major food all around sort of Ukraine and goodness knows where else, where it is um, just an everyday consumable fish. When the change happened in the UK from it becoming a food source to a sporting species is... Um, Again, largely unclear. But the availability of the selectively bred king carp into the UK can be traced back to certainly the 1800s. And in fact, places, for instance, uh, I've, I've just got a note here that the Thames was stopped with king carp in 1895. 400 of them were released into the Thames. That's a, a notable sort of stockings. And there was one company in the UK called the Manor Fisheries, operated by Thomas Ford in Lincolnshire, that had ties with a Dutch company that were producing, in quantity, small carp, selectively bred king carp. And he started to import them into the UK for sale, for angling purposes. They were deemed to be, uh, obviously, grew to a great size, over £10 in, in a lot of places. They were stern fighters, um, 
they were difficult to catch on purpose uh, virtually nobody then concentrated purely on carp they were only landed through accidental capture people yes i don't know fishing for roach fishing for anything other than carp in the main they got busted up and tremendous stories of monsters lost and battles and, uh, and all the rest of it and occasionally one would be landed and you know the monster turned out to be an eight pounder but you know uh, if you're catching four ounce roach an eight pounder is a, it really is a monster so thomas ford was very important in the late 1800s for starting to import king carp now the business arrangement that he struck up was with an incredible company in holland it's uh, Nederlander Heidemaschi. So how about that? And I'll tell, tell you later how to spell that. They were a reclamation land company that dealt with everything to do with agriculture. They had a peat side, dug just peat. They had arborist side, they had to do with forestry commissions. They also bred fish. And in the main, they bred carp. There was no selective breeding of carp in Holland. They were bought in uh, from outside and propagated from just a few fish to a massive company that uh, Heidemashi sort of grew into. Now, Thomas Ford died in the early 1900s, and in 1907, his Manor Farm fisheries was sold to the Surrey Trout Farm. This is our connection with Donald Leaney, because Donald Leaney in the mid-1920s joined the company. They were involved at that time, as the, as the name suggests, because it was the Surrey Trout Farm breeders and suppliers of trout throughout the country. Uh, he did a little bit of business abroad, but mainly in the UK. He saw an opportunity after the war, after the 1418 war, when Donald became involved with the company, of renewing the existing lines of contact that Thomas Ford had opened with the Hydamashi and he resumed uh, the business of selecting every autumn carp from the ponds uh, over in Vassen in uh, northern Holland his supplies for the year and uh, he would bring them in through the boat and railway network and they would end up at Hazelmere which is just on the fringes of Surrey and Hampshire. And uh, the holding ponds there were then, they were sold and distributed throughout the country. Some of the most famous carp waters that have been created in this country were from fish from Donald Leaney, uh, which included Redmar, Billing, Frencham. And uh, these Galatian, these, these fantastic uh, fish that I've already explained, they all came in a small fish, they were all stocked in. He bought in between the, the, the heady years of sort of the late 40s, after the war, after the Second World War, the late 40s all the way through to the mid-50s, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of these small carp were imported by the Surrey Trout Farm. Now a lot of them went into unsuitable habitats. Uh, you had things like inordinate predation, but obviously enough of these fish survived to grow into very big carp and become tales of legend. So um, from that sort of very quick potted history, we end up with Donald Leaney. The business as such ceased in the 70s, 
His supply of prime Haidamashi carp sort of finished around the mid-50s, but he did supply carp from other places. And then we had carp to come in from Italy. I mean, uh, Italian, Belgian carp. We had the incredible Dinkenbluer carp, uh, which is very similar to the Yately fish, uh, very high back, steep bodies, not very uh, many scales on them. They didn't tend to grow sort of that long compared to the Galatian fish. Just let me explain this, it is important. One of the attributes, besides the lovely coloration and the scaling and all the rest of it that the Galatian carp had, they also had an attribute which through selective breeding had been sort of bred into them, is that they could grow in bone structure for a greater time than almost every other race or strain of carp that were subsequently imported into the UK. For instance, you could quite easily find a Galatian carp could grow in bone structure to its maybe 13th, 14th or even 15th year, whereas the Italians, the Dinkin Bluers, or all the rest of it and you'd be hard pushed to, to find past their tenth year doesn't mean to say that you won't get a big fish but often some of these Galatian fish would be approaching three foot in length by the time they were fully grown and dependent on the condition of the fish the availability of food in the water you would then get width and depth I mean, it's little wonder that Redmire produced three record carp Galatian carp and dominated the list for 28 years. You know, these, they were all massively long fish that when the food was there, they had rich pickings. Whereas the sort of uh, dinks, dink and bluer carp or the Italian carps, they could still grow to a big fish, it's just that they became rotund. <laughs> you get these two incredibly, um, you could get a fish that would have a girth greater than its length. I don't mean really horrible big fat things. I mean, uh, I've got a picture to hand. I mean, there's a very famous fish called Shoulders that I, I managed to catch, and loads of people have caught it. It's a big fish. But it, I always remember, you know, it was uh, at a 29-inch girth and a 28-inch length. It was uh, quite an unusual sort of fish. So the stockings of carp have gone on through people bringing in uh, various races and strains from abroad. In the last 15 years, we've had proper homegrown carp. And these days, we have a fantastic choice. You've got Viv Shears and you've got Simon Scott of VS Fisheries producing fantastic scaly carp from eggs. Selectively breeding, you know, a famous uh, pond like Sutton carp, a famous uh, little lake in Kent, produced amazing fish crossing those with, say, fish from Redmire, you know, the mighty Redmire, getting the best of both worlds. So the, the VS Fisheries, there's a, the Smart Simmons of Heather Fisheries, there's a number of them now, and we, the last thing we need to do these days is import any carp. So that gives you a sort of how they became spread and, uh, and, and the reason why I've sort of covered that. But I guess, obviously then, so you know all about that, how do you catch them? <laughs> There's people that have angled purposely for carp, they're very few and far between in the early part of the 20th century. And... Um, all this came to a head and people will say, well, inevitably you're going to mention the name Richard Walker, but the fact remains that it did sort of just come to that point in time. In the 30s and 40s, people such as Dennis Watkins Pitchford, 
whose pseudonym name was uh, that he wrote under BB for many years, a grand old gentleman that I knew and met a number of times, who was a art teacher and also uh, very good at English at rugby. He was t- uh, a teacher. Forget his actual position and what school it was now. I should know stuff like that. And um, his children's stories, his stories of the countryside, of foxes, badgers, all the rest of it. Butterflies was another thing of his. But in amongst it, he had an absolute soft spot for carp. And um, he wrote these amazing books such as Confession of a Carp Fisher. Woodpool, there's numbers of them. Uh, Fisherman's Bedside book was littered with stories of big carp in there. And I mean, this really did get... um, in some people, the juices flowing. And Richard Walker was given in 1950, I think it was, BB's, let me see, it would have been the Fisherman's Bedside book for a Christmas present from his mother. And uh, in there it had uh, stole the virtues of been catching big carp, including um, several accounts of record-breaking carp in there. And Walker wrote to him and said, look, you're saying how difficult they are, actually formulated a few methods and I don't find them that hard to catch because 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 and so entered a, a friendship and which was to bear much fruit by certainly the early 50s Walker well without shadow of a doubt would have caught more 10 pound carp than any other man alive I mean it was into dozens I think it was well over 80 this is, has got to be set against the conjecture of most anglers out there probably hadn't seen a ten-pounder in the water, never mind landed one. They were a secretive fish. If they ever put one on a maggot, you got bust. Life was too short to contemplate trying to catch a carp. So against that backdrop, uh, Walker in particular, along with a few other people around the country, formed... In 1951, an influential organisation called the Carp Catchers Club. And uh, this detailed about a dozen people around the country, and they all pulled their information together. Fortunately, those letters were found about 15 years ago and were produced in letter form in the Carp Catchers Club Letters Book, which is a marvellous book, which lays the foundation of, A, the habits of the fish, baits to use, times to fish for them, and the whole grounding of how to catch them. Walker in particular had original thoughts. The thing with Walker, I mean, forget the record fish and all the other massive fish he caught, you know, in in all kinds of freshwater fishing. He came up with original thoughts. He came up with tackle ideas that, you know, nobody had thought of before. A simple thing, for instance, they're trying to catch big fish, and in a lot of cases, you know, fish that were over 20 pounds in weight, the landing nets that were, I mean, up until what I think Walker's, I'm probably right in saying Walker's fish was the first record carp that wasn't killed. They'd either been gaffed, right, because there was no adequate landing nets for them to be landed, and that was just uh, some of the, the fate that, that some of those fish had. So Walker came up with a large, collapsible, triangular landing net. 
that weighed two pounds in weight, was 36 inch arms, and can engulf a large pig, never mind a, a fish, and uh, that formed the basis of and this was in the early 50s, so 60 years ago, formed the basis of the nets that you see around today. The only thing that's changed instead of a spreader block is that there's been a fixed wire, you know, which arms plug into the net, which I suppose is an advancement. But I often say I do a lot of slideshows and stuff like that um, throughout the country, and sometimes, you know, I've been abroad and done them as well. I do show a picture of, of taken in Richard Walker's garden in the early 50s of his setup up for carp fishing. And um, I say to people, you just look at this picture here, this black and white picture, and nothing's really changed in 60 years. Uh, there's a purpose-built carp rod. We've all got one of them. There's a fixed ball reel. We've all got one of them. There's a bite alarm. It's nowhere near sophisticated, but it makes a buzz and a light goes on. There's a large collapsible landing net, all got one of those. It's not a bed chair, but he's got a rucksack and he's, you know, he's, he's comfortable. Where the quantum leap has happened is in the last foot. Right, so the terminal tackle is like that set up in the early 50s to where carp fishing is now. It's like here on Mars. And I don't just mean the hair rig, I mean the, the, all other aspects of, of rigs and, of course, baits. So, through the Carp Catchers Club and Walker's massive writing output, amazing output, angling times for 30 odd years, he never missed a week. We've all got letters from him, detailed. I don't know where he ever found the time to do all this. It was uh, when you start really looking at his writing output and his letters, certainly the handwritten ones, I've I've rarely seen anything crossed out in the, you know, they were just written beautifully. Uh, sadly, I haven't got any of those, all my ones from Dick, uh, from the early 70s uh, to around uh, just before he died, were all typewritten. It's one of those ones you, you read things, you just nod your head saying, yeah, of course it is. That's, yeah, he's right, he's dead right. Of course he's right, and that's the reason why. His friends... You know, would sometimes be in awe when he seemed to magic fish out the air. But he often said that there were people around him, not necessarily his close friends, but other, you know, the magical sort of world of, of fishing that gravitated around a star. To the vast majority of people, they only knew, you know, what he caught, not why and how he caught. They only know that. They don't know the reason behind it. And uh, just to, f to finish on Dick in, uh, before we go on to the record fish is that um, a thing that amazes me and we there's thousands and thousands of specialist big fish anglers in this country, not just carp anglers, and all of us do something that we're not even conscious of doing that in the early 50s when Walker came out with these rules on how to catch how to change the odds in your favour find the fish <laughs> it sounds a basic thing these days but uh, as Dick said you know it's not the closest place to the car park or in later times as I always uh, jokingly say it's not the spot 
that's close to the car that's nice and flat when you look out of the bivvy all the stainless steel looks wonderful it's not there you know the fish are like 400 yards that way so find the fish don't scare them right you know use a bait they're going to eat fish at a time when they you know and, and the fifth law that i put in is the fish does the rest i mean it's never as simple as that fishing but that kind of philosophy is amazing and every successful big fish angler in this country adopts that without even thinking about it and yet when walker said it it was when people fell on the floor saying you're on a power you know you fish a lifetime and eventually a glass case specimen will hang itself on the end of your line and uh, Walker said, well, no, actually, you know, you can change the odds. Of course, it's a great believer in, you know, adequate tackle. People said it was unsporting, £10 line. You know, and there we were fishing heavily weedy waters, sometimes with snags as well, and you're fishing for a big fish, often above £20 in weight. So all this went on. In the early 50s, a place came to the notice of certainly Richard Walker, called Redmar Pool, which is um, uh, near Ross and Wye in Herefordshire. This is situated on a farm, Benighton Court Farm, uh, small water. Most people that go there, and a great many carp anglers over the last 60 years have visited Redmar, and everybody, hum was no different when I first went, everybody stands on the dam and looks on it and says, isn't it small? How can a place like this and produce three record carp? dominated the big carp list for nearly three decades and it, it was found if you like in uh, the year before October uh, or 1951 um, by a, a chap that bought it to prominence called Bob Richards who was um, interested in carp fishing and he belonged to the Gloucester Anglers Association got talking to a chap and said oh, if you want big carp you need to go over Rossway and uh, Benighton Court and uh, he contacted the owner by telephone said yes you can come you know fishing and uh, he fished several times um, during the summer of 1951 occasionally hooked a big carp which um, I mean you've got to remember his best carp was maybe about five pounds at the time but he saw big ones floating around he then had a week's holiday booked for early October and the local uh, there's uh, two or three little farm cottages at the top of the hill at uh, Redmire and in um, in two of the cottages uh, lived these retired cottages to the farm and uh, they were people in there that, that sort of were linked with Redmire. One was Dave Bufton and the other one was Eric Higgs. Now Eric Higgs um, became the sort of bailiff in, in the 70s but early, early on when uh, Bob Richards was there, Walker, it was a, there was a tenant farmer. He was a right miserable so-and-so and didn't like anglers and made it, you know, altogether quite difficult for, for everybody early on. But obviously it got ironed out in the end. But um, young Eric Higgs, as he was in October 1951, I'm guessing he'd probably be a 10-year-old or 11-year-old. He'd met or seen Bob Richards because not many people fished there and he was interested you know he lived in the little farm he was the son of uh, one of the um, the farmhands he came down and uh, you know he became friendly with, with Bob Richards and Bob got him to can yourself I've got some time off next week can you bait up these spots with 
bits of paste, you know, showing them how to make bread paste and just throw them, you know, throw a dozen bits in this spot here and this spot here. So he baited up for him and he arrived there on this fateful day, it was the 6th of October 1951, it was a, um, what they call the little summer of St Luke, some of the country folk where you get those soft days in October and the cart would be perhaps be on the prod getting ready for possibly the bad weather of winter coming. And um, he started off in a place which became known as the Willow Pitch. It was a natural opening. Uh, it was very overgrown, the place neglected. It was very heavy weed. Um, and um, he called a carp and he lost one. And he thought, I'll move over to the other side. He moved over to, walked along the dam, fished by the little boathouse. Nothing happened for an hour. I thought, no, hang on, I'll go back to the other spot. And anyway, this time his float dipped away and this time he didn't break him didn't get stuck in the weeds and Eric Higgs home from school rushed down to see him and uh, was at his side was the only witness to when this monstrous fish suddenly appeared in front of them on the end of his line right in the edge and of course again his net was entirely inadequate and uh, he turned to Eric and said the, those fateful words passed me the gaff and um, the fish was dragged ashore I, th I think more than one attempt was made anyway it, it was weighed on the platform scales at the big house and it was uh, 31 and a quarter pounds it had beaten the old record quite comfortably which was 26 pounds and the fish was taken on the bus home. Can you imagine that under your arm? A 31-pound girl on the bus. Oh, yeah, he took it home, showed it was displayed at a tackle shop. And, uh, well, it was uh, designated to be buried, but thrown on the coal heap or something like that. But anyway, uh, BB got to hear of this. Obviously, it must have telephoned. There was no other way other than, I suppose, telegram. Uh, of contacting him and he said look you know if you still got the fish my friend Richard Walker is a first class chap that's setting up taxidermy fish could you send it to him and anyway ultimately that's what happened and Walker received the fish and it was set up and, uh, and put in a glass uh, case and obviously Walker was saying where the hell did, you know and with that um, I mean so long convoluted story but with that Walker managed to get a the first weekend of the 1952 season with his friend Pete Thomas who's still alive um, and um, Pete caught the second largest carp uh, after Bob Richards' fish a 28 pound 10 ounce mirror on that first visit and uh, they went several times Walker went with other pals fished I think he claimed 460 hours he fished at Red Mart during 1950 1952 um, he hooked and lost a number of fish some which he thought were monstrous he landed five six pounders stuff like that until the evening of the 12th of September when he and Pete Thomas left again for Redmire this is coming from Hitchin across country obviously no motorways in those days quite a long torturous route through Letchlade eventually uh, over to Herefordshire arrived in darkness set up their little tent in the willow pitch there was three rods out we were experimenting with a pre-production mark four carp rod dick had his original one and, uh, and pete had uh, 
had two rods out. Round five o'clock in the morning on the 13th of September, there was a bite on Dick's rod. So in the darkness he went out, picked up the rod, waited for the line to tighten. Um, struck hard, very, very dark. It was, he remembers, he could only see the outline of the trees opposite. And, uh, you know, the curve of the rod. And the fish um, made a determined run from sort of left to right. And right, not that far away, was the dam and a tangled mess of, of older roots. Well, you know, after the tree's been cut down, the roots were like a Medusa's hair in the water. And um, he knew if the fish got into there, whatever it was, it would probably tie him up and he'd lose it. So um, maximum pressure with the corks bending under his, that's a good expression, with the corks bending under his hands, the rod locked round well past uh, test curve. It stopped and uh, shot into a wee bed, got stuck, and anyway, made a zigzag path all the way back to close to the bank. Uh, with that, Pete turned on the big headlamp and uh, they saw, Pete says, oh, it's a common carp. And with that, it sort of suddenly righted the fish, got renewed energy, and shot from a position of maybe 15 foot out, shot straight into there under a bramble bush. And when I say bramble bush, it's like uh, a bramble bush that had grown and got crushed and the whole thing, and new growth on top. It's a real barrier in the water, if you like, it's hung over. And it crashed through uh, there and got stuck. And of course, rods aren't made for things like that. It was difficult. Um, with that, well, sad story goes, the hole that the fish made, Pete went out, laid on this bramble heap, put the large triangular net over the hole where it went and felt down the line and sort of teased the fish and it shot straight out into the net. And um, somehow or other, the pair of them managed to manhandle this um, big fish ashore and then looked at it and then, of course, the more I looked at it, Dick was saying, this is a mighty big carp. And um, the hook was um, only lightly lodged in the fish's mouth. It came out quite easy. They then made a rough way, and it was just getting light then, made a rough way on the bank with two sets of scales and got a weight of 41.5 pounds. So they knew there and then that it was a new, by a considerable margin, a new record carp. And uh, he sent a telegram to Bernard Venables to give you... A timeline on it. The 13th of September was a Saturday in 1952, and it was the day of the All England match. And um, Ken Sutton, uh, who was the founder of Angling Times, and Bernard Venables, who was then writing for the Daily Mirror on his mis- famous Mr. Crabtree angling fishing strip, to, uh, simply said, Court Cart 41.5 pounds. Blah, blah, blah. And then he sat from, so Pete says, he sat chain smoking outside the tent Pete was inside and um, in that period he vowed a not to kill it he's a very good photographer walker and there's plenty of photos taken of the fish he then um, thought well hang on you know it's always been levelled at us you know that we're fibbers romancers always gilding the lily on catching big fish if I could prove to people yeah, that this was a physical living monster fish, 
how could I do that? I didn't want to kill it, certainly. Uh, came up with the idea of putting it in a zoo. He rang London Zoo, so I don't know how he... How he out of a telephone directory in the big house, he went up to the Bernathan Court, used the phone, uh, rang up, and um, they said, um, he said, look, I've got a £40 carp here. If you'd like to come and collect it, send somebody to collect it, you can have it for the zoo. And, um, well, it's a fabulous story, and I'm sure it happened. I'm not disputing anything. Uh, but Walker claimed that um, the voice at the other end, uh, who was obviously disbelieving, said, look, no, sorry, we've, uh, we've got a £14 carp. No, 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 not a £14 carp, a £14 carp. And the guy sort of made some terse comments and uh, to, uh, you know, wish people, you know, hoaxes didn't ring up at the Saturday. And he said, look, uh, you have to be quite firm with him. I've got a £40 carp here if you want it for the zoo. You can come and get it. Uh, if not, I'll ring up Bristol Zoo, and I'm sure they'll be more than delighted with it. And if then they find out, your employers find out that you turned it down because you didn't believe me, and Bristol Zoo was So, no, I've no reason to disbelieve. Dick, it sounds a great story, but it, that's what you said happened. And uh, later that day, a truck arrived with a tub in it, and um, yes, indeed, uh, it was transported all the way back to the Regents Park Zoo in London and uh, it was weighed on arrival 44 pounds which was obviously a different weight than recorded on the bank but maybe with two sets of scars it wasn't the best way of doing it. Walker thought at first that the sack must have been included the fish was uh, wrapped in but no it was confirmed that no it wasn't it was the true weight of 44 pounds and it resided in there from 1952 to 1971 when it died and I am one of my great claims to carp fishing fame if you like is that I was certainly the last carp angler possibly the last fisherman ever to touch that fish alive because in January 1971 I went to the zoo which was deserted nobody goes to zoos in the winter I'd written beforehand uh, I mean, it was all above board, and asked uh, if I could, you know, see the head keeper or something like that, and I'd like, if possible, to view the, you know, not from the front, actually view it from above, you know, actually get a sort of really close look at this incredible fish. Now, if you just wind the clock back into the 50s, as a kid I went there, and uh, many people listening to this, when I asked for a show of hands, wherever I'll go around the country, Inevitably, a hand or two will go up. Do you ever see the record carbon on the zoo? What was record carbon? You know, do people will. And I went with the school once, remember that. Certainly went with the school. When we'd gone to the zoo, but obviously the aquarium was part of it, and I was transfixed by it. I mean, this damn thing was as big as me then. I've been about six or seven years old. Went with mum and dad once or twice, I remember. And in January 1971, there was a young lady that escorted me around. And I mean, when I think about it now, with health and safety and all that, it was, it was right, it was dodgy. When we went up above, um, there was narrow, hazard walkways between. They were illuminated. This area above was in darkness. You can see where you're going. But they were uh, sort of walkways, narrow walkways. And, you know, I remember going and following this girl carefully, you know, along, until she said, uh, it's in this one here, waggle your fingers, it'll come up. I say it had been in captivity 19 years at that stage, and it was tight. And it came up and Clarissa sucked the 
famous clearest or original name ravioli we better say that the popular name afterwards it became clearest but walker had, uh, thomas had named it ravioli one of the first fish ever certainly carp to be given a name and um yeah clarissa sucked my fingers and and then sort of half laid on the surface of, with my right hand index finger i remember rubbing it along the flank of the fish it was a big thrill for me you know, it sounds a dull thing to say but it was, it was a big thrill and for years afterwards at slideshows they used to come out with you know anybody want to touch this finger only as a giggle and one night I was in Scunthorpe, Leeds, God, somewhere like that, heaving with people. I remember it was the winter and nobody could go fishing, we were all frozen. And I said this and suddenly somebody said, yeah, can I touch it? And they came from the back of the hall with his wife with a camera. You know E.T., it was like something out of E.T. with this fella touching my finger and his wife taking a photograph. It was quite funny. So, uh, yeah, and in the May that year, 1971, it died, and people blamed me. But it was nothing to do with me, I promise you. <laughs> that was Walker's Fish. I subsequently uh, became quite enthralled uh, with that particular carp. I have scales from the fish, one of very few that were ever taken from Clarissa. I have the rod that caught Clarissa, Walker's Bark 4, number one. Um, I have sort of all the pictures that were taken that day not only on walker's camera but pete thomas took some on a little box brownie as well so i be you know became very enthralled certainly after coming face to face with that fish by the way it appeared to me like to be an old man then it had a concave belly i remember that it had a growth close to the nostril on, on the uh, the sort of gill plate which looked quite nasty and when I went down and looked at it then from through the glass uh, we went down afterwards it looked like an old man you know yeah so I, I thought then I mean god blimey in 1971 I'd um, my best fish was about 16 or 17 pound and to me it looked like a 30 pounder then when it died it was 28 and three quarter pounds so it shrunk from 44 pounds down to 28 and uh, three quarters uh, it was put in a glass case, uh, very poorly set up. And it, you can still see it today in lanes of um, West Bromwich or somewhere around Birmingham area. I went to the shop once, I remember looking at it. It's not really a sight, the mighty clearest that you want to see. And that set walk on the road to, I don't know, I wouldn't say fortune. <laughs> he never made anything there, but certainly fame. And then he went on just to catch all these other amazing fish um, of all species with an incredible catalogue of figures, including carp. Uh, another thing worth mentioning, uh, and in fact I've got to think long and hard if I can, certainly at that period there was anybody who held both the record and the second largest fish of any species at that stage, but Walker did. Because in 1954 he caught a 31 and a quarter pounder, which was really 34 pound, but I'm, we won't go into that story. But he, all I'm saying is he headed the first and second in the carp uh, record list, which um, I don't think anybody uh, at the time had, had done. And here we are all these years later, and um, 40 pounders, though are much more common these days, they are still an absolute top thing for a carp angler to catch i haven't caught one not in this country 
and I have fished waters with the men. It's not that I haven't, but uh, one hasn't come my way, but it might be this year. Who knows? I am next week going to a water that holds a number of 40-pounders, so uh, you never know. Uh, I could uh, either talk myself into one, or maybe I'll put the mockers on it before I mentioned it. You mentioned earlier the chap coming up from the back of one of your talks to touch the finger that had previously touched Clarissa, and also a warning walker's personal mark for a cart rod. Now I've actually handled that rod when you kindly brought it out of safe storage for me to look at and to film. And afterwards I had a similar experience to yours. Two people actually wanted to shake the hand that had held that rod. Such is the esteem Richard Walker is still held in today. And deservedly so. Mm -hmm. 